0: Welcome to the podcast. It's the worst territory in the world. Personalities, history, and all the stories. We know you're craving for more knowledge. Let the champions get their glory. It's the worst territory. Hello everybody and welcome to the worst territory in the world. I am your host, Gabe Miller, sitting here with Chris Goff. Chris, the holidays are over. We are on the other side. Thank the Lord. I know mine was busy. How was your holiday? Um... Well, we, well, the holiday
1: itself was great. Um, had a good time. Uh, it's my favorite time of the year. Uh, my parents, uh, wanted to pay for my kids to go to Disney world. So yeah. what ended up happening is on December 27th, I got a, uh, email at six 30 in the morning when I was just waking up and looked at my phone and it was your Southwest plans have changed. And so it was basically like, Oh, your, your flight is canceled. So, uh, and it, of course the big Southwest Ireland snafu that went around the news for a week. So anyway, uh, ended up having to drive back and forth to Orlando from Kansas city. And uh, that wasn't fun with a couple of children, but um, you know, it, we had some good road stories and they gave me a hundred thousand points. So, um, other what than that, that it what was does great. that mean?
0: Did they like, uh, um, is, does that mean a couple flights uh, or, you know,
1: or- it depends, you know, it's like a, a flight, one way flight could be 9,000 points up to 50,000, depending on where you go or whatever. So you could almost get, uh, you know, three or four round trips out of that possibly. But uh, look, it was I, Southwest has always been great for me. Um, never really had any problems with them. American is completely opposite, but uh, I so I can't really, agree. I can't really get mad at Southwest. But anyway, that was that was mine. And you had your first holiday with your daughter. That was good.
0: Yeah, yeah. Um, speaking of which, real quick, with those miles, have you ever thought about opening up a wrestling promotion and using those miles to fly in the first talent? <laughs> you want no,
1: no. <laughs> I don't want to waste any more money on uh, indie wrestling. No, I haven't thought that.
0: Um yes, uh, it was the first Christmas with the uh daughter and uh so we were surrounded by family. Um obviously being the first grandbaby on my um my in-laws side, uh, they were over the moon and she so here here's here's what I learned. I learned that so uh, uh everyone celebrates Christmas on December 25th. Sure. Uh, My church celebrates Christmas on January 7th. So from here on out, my, my daughter is going to get basically two Christmases, the,
1: nice
0: the uh, one on the 25th and then the one with her church on the 7th. And I learned that I am never going to have to buy a gift for my daughter on Christmas ever, Chris. Ever.
1: <laughs> yeah, dude, it gets, it gets ridiculous it, when they're young. You just get
0: too much stuff. 100%. Like I was like, oh, I don't need to do anything, which is kind of refreshing But um, I think I'm going to use it as a learning opportunity to tell my daughter when she gets, like, one present from mom and dad on on January 7th, say, now, what's the reason for the season kind of conversation? You get all your presents on the 25th. The 7th is when we celebrate the birth of of Christ. So, Um, but yeah, it was really good. Like, she just seeing the, everyone else's joy wrapped in her, like when she's opening gifts or, you know, not really opening anything, but you know, we, you stick the paper in her hand and you kind try of try to get like, her to rip it. Yeah. Right. right. So it, it, it was really, it was a lot of fun. And cool. uh, it was, uh, it, it was something I'll always remember. She'll never remember it, but it's something that I'll always remember. So
1: <laughs> yeah, I understand. Totally. But definitely
0: the holidays have a new spin. Like, I would say that I will now enjoy the ho- I always love the Christmas season too, but I think I'm going to enjoy it much more with my daughter. So
1: definitely kids make the holiday much more. I'm actually dreading the fact when my kids get too old, they move out and then it's just uh, my wife and I like, cause I've thought about it. Like I've never really had to think about it too much, but you know, do you still want to put up everything still that you put up now? Because right. it's just you and her, <laughs> you know, the kids might come by, but not, it's not like the complete festive month. So I don't know. We'll see how that evolves.
0: When do you, when do you guys, when i have to know when do you guys put up the tree and when does it come down
1: well you know we have so much stuff for both halloween and christmas at our house so halloween is my wife's favorite so we put that up like Early to mid September, at least, okay. Uh, because like there's so much stuff and that's sort of how I'm with Christmas. It takes so long to put it up. I want it up a long time (laughs) and we take it down. Like, I mean, Christmas, it goes. I'm not a big like Thanksgiving's fine, but I don't like I could just totally go from Halloween straight into Christmas season. That doesn't bother me. It does bother some. Uh, But as far as taking it down, like by New Year's, usually. Sure.
0: Oh, okay, all right, because I, you know, uh, I know some people that let it breathe a little bit afternoon.
1: We keep the we keep the lights on the double wide all year long. No, we (laughs) don't do that. We don't. We we take them down, but some people like to leave them up all year.
0: Yeah. Oh, yeah, it's that's just wild, wild stuff. Speaking of wild, the most wild man in the history of the Midwest territory, the worst territory in the world. You have uh, an interview with Dan Geyer I'm being totally facetious. Dan is not a wild man whatsoever, <laughs> but this week you had the uh, the privilege to sit down with a guy that we've uh, that we've all come to know, love, and respect in in the Midwest wrestling scene. And Dan Geyer, so talk to us a little bit uh, about the interview, and then we'll get into some latest and greatest news, and then we'll we'll kick it to that interview.
1: So Dan Geyer, I met him. I was trying to remember the first time I met him. I think it was when Harley race came in with, with some students and we had a sort of a little program with Metro pro versus WLW in the early days of Metro pro. And he came into a show, which was a huge deal. And uh, it was so cool to have him there. And that's probably the first time I ever met Dan Geyer, but Dan Geyer, uh, if you don't know who he is in the Midwest, he's a quiet guy. You probably don't know, but uh, he was a ring announcer for WLW. He was part owner of WLW. He was a confidant and friend of Harley race for decades. Decades. He met him. You'll find out he met him when he was a a, a small child. And um, he was around Harley for most of his life, especially when Harley came back and settled down in Missouri to have his Harley Race Wrestling Academy and his promotion. So uh, Dan just had a lot of cool stories about being around the Harleys, the Bob Geigles, the Gus Karrises, you know, stuff like that. Uh, he was around all the old promoters and all the old wrestlers and has a lot of stories. You know, it's usually guys like Dan Guy or Gabe that I feel like have the best stories to tell because they're the ones that get to sort of be the fly on the wall and watch it all sort of happen because they happen to be in the same room as these people. I always felt like some of the big stars, they, their books and their sort of opinions are not nearly as interesting as the guys that are below them because, you know, they're living it. And everyone else is sort of watching and observing and seeing how it goes down. So uh, Dan also was a pivotal part in me starting Metro Pro Wrestling and continuing that for years. And then, as you know, and you met him with uh, the National Wrestling League, NWL. He was a big part of that as well. So uh, we
0: talk about all of that. And now he's a part of the evil empire, which I was giving him a hard time about at Journey's final (laughs) show. I was like, oh, no, you're a part of the Missouri Athletic Commission, you know, and all that kind of stuff. So, Oh, yes. Just giving him a hard time about all that. But Dan, I, I've, I've said it from the beginning. Dan is one of the best people I've met in the business. I said it last time when we were talking about trying to get Dan on the show is that my favorite car ride, top three favorite car rides was um, my car ride to Wichita with Dan Geyer. Um, and, you know, one thing that I think is a lost kind of thought or process or whatever you want to call it in the wrestling business is – getting to sit under the learning tree of someone who wasn't a worker, but like you said, was, yeah, I mean, he was around, I mean, the stories that he has about just Harley and the business and everything. I mean, it just goes to show you that you don't have to necessarily be a worker to have these great stories and to learn a lot about the pro wrestling business from guys like Dan Geyer.
1: Yeah. I I told Dr. Tom, like um, if Dr. Tom wrote a book, it obviously wouldn't be like a New York, times bestseller because dr tom is not the rock or hulk hogan or whatever but dr tom is a great storyteller and he was around so much and, oh and different levels and like he he's a he's a witty guy and and that's why i feel about dan Geyer he could he could write a book about oh you know he went to japan with harley once <laughs> just going to japan with harley in those later years would have been great uh he just he has a lot of information and a lot of uh fun stories i asked him about a couple um a couple well-known Harley race stories to sort of see if I could get the official story. But, you know, as in wrestling, you never really know the official story of any good legendary story. So uh, he, he tries his best to, to smooth that out.
0: Yeah. And, and speaking of, so we'll get to that interview in just a minute, but one thing, Chris, you know, we always like to kind of talk about the newest, latest and greatest. And I told you what I wanted to talk to you about, but actually the first, I came up with something else really quick. Did you watch? Wrestle Kingdom. Go.
1: I did not know. I could care less about Wrestle Kingdom, but okay. I'm not a big first Japanese of all, he's wrestling fan.
0: First of all, Chris, did you know that Kenny Omega had yet another 6.25 star classic? Yes. Can you believe that?
1: I I mean it's it's in Japan, so of course it's gonna happen. Uh it was uh what it was him and, and Will Osprey, right? Okay, um,
0: so, yes, it was Yes. R- Chris. I got it. I got to know because I love your takes on things. What do you think of this going over the five-star thing? And, I mean, and it's, just, it's, it's
1: ridiculous. I mean, I, I look, I, I just have a problem with Dave Meltzer in general. Uh, on, okay. Look, I, I try to separate this, right? Like, Um, Dave Meltzer has a part in wrestling and he has, he's a historian. He knows a ton. Everyone puts over his obituaries. Like he, he has been there for decades and decades. So I, I get the positive of Dave Meltzer. The only issue I really have with Dave Meltzer is that he much like a lot of news people in the last 20 years, uh, his opinions are, just that opinion. So like he writes stuff and unfortunately, whether it's a uh, political news or wrestling news, if someone writes their opinion on something, some people just think it's fact and it's really annoying. Uh, I have a problem with the fact that he, I've always had a problem even when, when I was on the writing team with WWE, and we would do these segments on pay-per-views or raws that were basically character development segments. And I understand get, uh, Dave does not like those segments. He he doesn't care right. about right. character development. He Never just has. wants a high-paced, like fast action, like lots of moves, flippy floppity match. And he loves those, which again, totally cool. You can like those. But what I don't like about Dave is the, for the other people that don't exactly just like that. And they like character development in a, in a pay-per-view or a television show where a segment, for example, I ha- I wrote so many segments and help write so many segments where these characters would go out there and just have an interview segment, have like some kind of action in the ring that was not a match. Okay. And uh, it was just to build up heat for their upcoming pay-per-view match or whatever. And uh, he hates those. He takes a huge dump on those. So um, I mean, some of the classic moments in, WWF history and in the ring, he just, things are horrible. And uh, for that reason alone, I don't really care about any of his ratings. But the fact that he goes, what was it? Uh, Kenny Omega, I I forget the stat. He has more like five star plus matches than Shawn Michaels and all these other people combined. It's ridiculous.
0: He he has, I think the stat was he has six or seven over six star matches. Over six, not just over five. Or maybe it's over five. So, like,
1: honestly, like, if you're a Dave Meltzer lover out there and you think that Dave Meltzer is the be-all, end-all of everything that is rating wrestling shows, like, how can you even logically argue and defend, uh, A, having higher than five-star matches all the time now, which is ridiculous, ridiculous, and B putting it on people who obviously to anyone out there, like the far majority of people out there do not believe that Kenny Omega is a better in-ring worker than Shawn Michaels. Okay. So, and and you continue to try to make that a, a reality, which really is just a fantasy in Dave's mind. So I, I don't understand how you can even defend this. So I, it's dumb. I I've, I've stopped sort of he's white noise now.
0: Okay. But why? That's, that's my biggest thing is why, why does Dave Meltzer have, because I saw the match and it was good. It was really good, but I I didn't, I, 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 it didn't leave me breathless. I wasn't like, Oh my God. By the, I was just like, yeah, it was really good.
1: Because but, you're probably used to emotional moments in matches where you have a ton of build up and you're trying to see how it works out in the ring, Gabe. So you're like probably a little bit more, uh, you know, on the edge of your seat if this is something that, right. uh, you know, someone's been bloodied and beaten up and his wife is taken hostage and all this other stuff has been building up into this moment right. in the ring and that match and this is what's happening. Oh my gosh, you know, uh, those are moments that you're waiting for as a wrestling fan. And now Dave just purely goes on a, a, what they do in the match, which is. Um, I, I think uh, a really bad way of rating matches, but I'm not Dave Meltzer and I don't make money as, as an observer writer, so it doesn't really matter. He, he's, his legacy in the business is one that is to be respected just because he's been around for so long. Okay, so yeah. I, I get it, yeah. Yeah. but... Um, and I think he does a really good job because he is such a, a guy that remembers everything. He does a very good job of, of notating history. He does, uh, whether it's obituaries or just, you know, just he understands. He, he obviously has a fascination with Japanese wrestling for whatever reason. Uh, we all have our things that we like. I get it. But um, as a journalist, he leaves obviously a lot to be desired because he's not really a journalist. He's just a guy that's sort of a commentator on things that he likes. And I think he's sort of morphed into that over the years. But if you go back and like listen to some of the stuff he writes in the observer, even, even he hated Shawn Michaels. He hated that whole era of WWE when Shawn was there. So like at the time, if you go back and listen to stuff, he writes, it's like, you know,
0: there's an obvious bias there.
1: You're obviously against this company right. so hard. Right. And uh, so this has been going on for decades, but uh, for some reason it's more under a microscope now. I don't know, but it's helping his business, right? At the end of the day, he wants people to subscribe to him. He wants the new, y- young, younger generation that enjoys no buildup and no uh, storyline in the matches and no emotion, just the flips in the match. He He wants those people to like him. And obviously right. they do because he, you know, let's to go on a small tangent here, the CM punk and a steel slash, you know, young bucks at Omega saga. He was obviously biased in that from day one. So like, you know, he wants to stay on that side and just get paid by that side. So um, that's, that's what he's doing. So for a business, he's doing great.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I completely agree. And I think, you know, who had a really good take on it. Obviously I don't agree with this man on everything, but Jim Cornette's take on the whole match was, was uh, pretty much exactly how I felt. he, (laughs) 100% 100% how I felt. Uh, speaking of the uh, uh, CM Punk thing, um, Dax Hardwood has a really, actually, I thought a very good podcast about uh, the whole CM Punk si- situation and uh, wrestling in general. And he he loves, loves the wrestling business. So I recommend any wrestling fan who's really into just a, uh, a, a pretty good opinion about how the wrestling business should work because he's he's a good blend of like he's you know busted it out in the in the territory or in sure the, you know in the old school way for a respected long time.
1: in-ring worker
0: definitely. yeah absolutely and, and and very much has a, a really good take so goff if you haven't listened to that I, I highly suggest it cool um so let's get to the main story because you worked here you've done you put in your time um so this past uh week, I think last Friday, Vince McMahon announced that he is going to and did come back into the fold as the executive chairperson of WWE. What was the exact title? Do you remember?
1: Uh chairman of the board. Yeah. I, I you know, it's I, He basically that he's the board of directors
0: yeah he basically has the the voting power and said that he's coming back he is basically coming back on board to ensure a smooth transition of of some uh possibly of some sort of sale of the wwe so chris do you do you think that obviously you probably felt this was going to be coming a mile away you probably never felt vince was done to begin with do you think that this is what it appears that he is going to help the sale of wwe or is this going to hurt
1: um, gosh, you know, that's, I know it's a lot. That, it's a lot. That question by itself, I think that selling it, it would help for Vince to be there. Uh, maybe some others would disagree. You know, Nick Khan does have a good track record of these kind of things. So I guess you could argue like Nick Khan can handle this without you, Vince. If we don't need you. But, you know, when when Vince put out that tweet months ago about I'm retiring, you know, and I'm just like, I just didn't like it came out of the blue. I It came out of the blue from a standpoint of like it what there was no real lead up to it outside of like all these allegations against him, which have been going on for decades anyway. So like you, you hear all this and all of a sudden he just tweets that he's retiring and it's all over. And I'm like, You know, that's obviously not the Vince that I knew. Like, I just didn't think he was going to be gone that easily. Like, okay, I'm done by like, I just, (laughs) but he sat back for a while, obviously, um, you know, I'm, I'm sure he was given, you know, the 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 thought that you should step away, help the business get away, you know, get all these allegations out of the way and all these people are going to say stuff about you. Don't don't sit in the business because it'll hurt the stockholders, which is the number one thing now, which, I, you know, uh, again, if we go back and see like what is the downfall of WWE it really in, in terms of creatively and stuff that they can and can't do, it's it's when they went public, but uh, you know, he's stock stockholders are the number one priority. So him stepping away made sense when all the sexual allegations are going down, but you know, that's sort of when he walked away, it sort of quieted down, you know? So, um, I look, man, no matter if you hate him or, you know, I, it's funny to, you know, read tweets and all this social media stuff about how like all these people have these opinions and like, they're so negative about Vince. And I, I guess I just, at the end of the day, this is a company that he single-handedly created. Uh, I just, you know, through trial and error for decades, he did this. He did it all himself, and, like, I, he has every right to come back and tell anyone to do anything at this point. I think he did lose a lot of power, obviously, when he went public. You know, he could have had complete control, but he got a ton of money, though, that way. That was a trade-off. But, uh, I mean, he has every right to do what he's doing. Do I think it's the best for the company now? Maybe not because it's like, you know, creatively, uh, I think a lot of people have given the company a second chance. And they think that, oh, Triple H and the the new regime, they're not going to do stupid stuff Vince did. They brought all these people back and blah, blah, blah. And I don't know what's true or not that you read online. Is Vince really going to keep Triple H in control of everything and he's just going to help facilitate the sale? I don't know. I mean, I... I think Vince uh, has a lot of connections. He knows a lot of rich people. Um, he, he floats in those circles. And does it like much like the NWO promo that everyone keeps referring to in 2002 when he said if he can't, you know, Help! he's gonna kill the company he created you know like I think he's uh, that's definitely something that feels like that he would want to do Um, so I saw Disco Inferno tweeted like why you know Vince Senior left it to Vince Junior why can't Vince Junior leave it to his kids which was completely false I mean that's not how it went Vince paid his dad money for a company that was a, a, a millionth of what it's become I mean it's so much bigger than it was before and you know like my parents started a business, uh, you know, and they ran it for 20 years and as a kid of a business owner, they they never really put pressure on me to take it over. And my dad sold it and got to retire early. And I always thought like that is the American dream. You start a business, you you make money off it for years, and at the end you sell it and like you have money for yourself and leave it to your children or whatever. And really, if that's what Vince wants to do, I think that's a really sort of a cool story for him personally. Now, don't get me started on like how whacked out that entire family is and their, fam- their family dichotomy is completely nuts and like i would not trade my life at all for their life but uh within
0: that crazy world it makes sense so i the funny thing about it is is when he, people get are obviously and this is all online opinions they're so emotionally invested in vince and this is not our words but vince being a rapist or Vin, what throw any adjective you want about his sure. sexual misconduct a- allegations and again They're allegations, right? I mean, you got to be fair, but anyways, we won't get into that, but you know, everyone's emotional about what Vince did and not taking a step back to look at the one consistent thing that I've heard from every person that's ever worked for Vince or anything of the sort is Vince does not vacation. Mm -hmm. He does not take any kind of breaks really from the WWE. And he's been doing that for 50, how long? 50 plus years.
1: Dude, I I when I worked when I worked for Vince and I was in my low 20s to mid 20s um I learned pretty early on that uh Vince McMahon does not really sleep he only works at WWE. He's at work or at the gym at the, at the WWE at Titan tower. He is there either working or at the gym or on the road with TV the entire right. time. Right. So you're never going to outwork your boss. Right. So you just try not to look like a complete slacker around him because, right. you know, the dude is a different animal. Um, you know, like major Bayesian was sort of like that too. You know, they're just, those kind of people are a different breed and, um, You know, it's being around him was fascinating and it's not some, it's not really a life that I would want, but he, uh, you know, you got to give it to him. The guy was a workhorse. He was. So if you
0: expect it, so my point being is if you expect, if anybody expected him to just go sip, uh, my ties on an Island somewhere, you're crazy. This is all this guy has known for his, basically his entire life. And he grew it from a smaller regional promotion into the billion dollar company that it is. So you are kidding yourselves, all of you. If you think for one second that he was just gonna slide into the afterthought of what WWE is. Now I'm not saying he's going to retake book because everyone's all worried about booking control. Like who's going to take the book now? Is that's it gonna such be... a
1: minor part of this? Right. Right, I mean,
0: it, yeah. ex- Exactly. And, and at the end of the day, which I, you know, I, I've heard rumors from people on the inside that, you know, there's going to be a certain larger, larger media company, um, maybe paired with somebody else that's going to buy the WWE. And I think it, you would be a fool if you didn't have Vince McMahon leading the charge, this is a business. It is a smart business move for Vince McMahon to come back into the fold, regardless of the capacity that he comes back in. And you, people are just so worried about, oh, is he going to fire Bray Wyatt again? Yeah, maybe. Maybe. But that's but what it's about is securing the highest and best deal. And uh, uh, for the WWE going forward. So I think it's Look, a
1: Vince McMahon, as I've said before, Vince McMahon has set up WWE for his children or whoever else to run it for decades and decades. I mean, he has a performance center. You right. send people down there. It, no matter how, this sounds brutal because it is, but uh, you just go, it's a factory. You send young people down yep. there, whether they want to be wrestlers or they're just yep. pro athletes. They, want, they go down through the cycle. They cycle into the main roster for a few years. They cycle out. Here's next. I mean, that's just how it's going to be now. Um, it's a, it is a cookie cutter formula. It's a factory and he set it up that way. And it's worked out. Like, I don't think creatively, like for those of us that grew up in the, you know, eighties, nineties, uh, that's creatively, it is not as good as it once was, but that's for a million different reasons, whether it's, uh, you know, I even thought when I was there in the, uh, in the early two thousands, it was like, you know, we can't do the same kind of storylines they did in the 80s and 90s just because the times have changed in, the, in society, whether everything's very sensitive now and uh, wrestling really took a hit, not only just because of the death of kayfabe because of the Internet, but also because of all the political correctness that, um, you know, the thing that always annoyed me the most about storylines and wrestling during the political correctness era is at the end of the day, if you're a wrestling fan, you know that the good guys ninety nine point nine percent of the time always win and always win so the problem is nobody in this world now everyone is just so gung-ho like the first chapter of a story told if it if it goes against the the good guy at all it's like this is horrible this is blah 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 sexist racist whatever they want to say about it and it's like But at the end, the bad guy's going to get their comeuppance. This is like any movie or book that has been written like as a, you know, fiction book for the last thousand years. It's how it plays out. But there's no, you know, that that's why uh, in some ways the Dave Meltzer theory of like, let's just see you can do the most flips. That's the way that you're going to have people doing matches now because you're not going to be able to do. I mean, even like think about like Macho Man, Hulk Hogan, like uh, and they're fighting over, you know, Miss Elizabeth and like sort of the sexualization of Miss Elizabeth and like uh you know that did randy beat her and all this stuff it's like you know that would be blown out of proportion so much now that that storyline probably would be thrown off television <laughs> you know it's like and and that was one of the greatest storylines ever in wrestling not for any bad reasons because at the end uh good prevailed, and that's just that that's a very simple storyline thing in wrestling and people just don't wait for it anymore so uh, creatively it is a small cog in that entire business uh just the image rights for everything I mean think about Disney I mean I just went down to Disney and of course Vince always like wanted to be Walt Disney of wrestling it's like Disney like was based around a mouse that was created in Kansas City and now like Mickey's barely in anything now he's got like a cartoon he's just like sort of a statue now that they, they sell trillions of dollars of Mickey merchandise and he when was the last time Mickey started anything and that's how you could do with these all these characters from wwe for the last 50 years i mean there's money to be made there and i you know vince has a lot of connections uh it'll be interesting i when i saw the saudi arabian government of some sort might be involved i was like that would make sense they're already paying tons of money to get some shows out there i can see them doing that but how much of a backlash would that be Will there have to be a a sort of a false head that is buying it funded by the saudi arabian government <laughs> maybe who knows but it's oh, going to be billions of dollars
0: i'm sure at the end of the day um who buys it in your opinion right now if you had to go shoot off the cuff and say this company's going to buy it who who are you go you know with?
1: like the netflix and them of the world i don't i mean i maybe i'm i'm not exactly know all their financials but i feel like a lot of them have made cuts recently you know are they really in the business of wanting to run a professional wrestling entertainment company i i don't know I mean, a lot of these media things are thrown out there as far as the streaming capacities but You know, it would have to be a traditional, like old school company like a Comcast. Or I always thought The Rock would be involved with someone that they could, you know, pull their assets together and, and their image together to buy it. Uh, I, we've been talking about that for a while. The Rock might be the, the quote-unquote owner that runs the company one day. Who knows? That would be a really cool story to go full circle. But uh, I think it's going to be a traditional broadcaster, like television-wise, entertainment-wise, not a streaming service. And do, uh, you can't really discount some of that foreign money either. I, I, that would be my guess.
0: Yeah, I'm going to go with uh, Disney or NBC Universal. That, that, those are going to be my – those are my top two picks yeah, uh, well. for, for who's
1: They going. got a lot of money, man. I just spent a lot of money down there, so I, I they, they have tons of money to spend. So we'll see.
0: <laughs> they got a lot of golf money. All right. Without further ado, Chris, let's go ahead and get into that really good interview with Dan Geyer, um, and he is a prime example, as you talked about, of what is right – uh, here in the worst territory in the world. So let's go ahead and take it take it away, and let's uh, get to the interview with Dan Geyer right here on the Worst Territory in the World. It's the worst territory.
1: Joining me now is an old friend of mine. He's helped me for, I don't know, a decade and a half now, it feels like. Uh, he has been in Central States wrestling territory for a very long time in multiple facets. I mean, he's helped me at the independent level, but he's also... Rubbed elbows with Harley Race for many years and got it. knew a lot of old-time promoters as well in the area. His name is Dan Geyer. Dan, nice to, nice to talk to you again.
2: Well, thank you for the opportunity to visit us, Bill. It's been a while.
1: I know, I know. But every time I see you, we can sit here and talk forever. <laughs> That's true. Um, I enjoy when you stop by my, uh, my business and we chat about the old days and that now the old days to me when you were like 10 years, but you've been around much longer than that. I, you know, I, you always, uh, one thing that always rem, rem, I, reminds me of you is when we were running St. Joe, uh, with the NWL and, uh, we had, we always had really good crowds in St. Joe and uh, I remember one time you were like, Gus Karras would be really proud of this, you know. And you were like, I could just see him sitting over there right there. Did you, did you have a lot of interaction with Gus Karras?
2: Uh, toward the very end of his life, um, and it's part of the quirk of the central states, because Gus still controlled St. Joe, even though he wasn't part of, you know, the new... Bob Geigel. Heartland of America. O'Connor. Yeah. Yeah, Heartland of America. He'd sold his shares, but Gus still controlled the auditorium. Yeah. So he, you had to go through Gus to get into St. Joe. Uh, so he would, and he was still active. And he, for those that don't, he always wore a, you know, fashionable cap, gentleman's hat. Yeah. And he smoked that pipe like a. Smokestack when things weren't going well, and but when things were going, he was had that little grin, grin on his face, and he was always in a suit, um, much different than Bob Geigel and the other crew. <laughs> <laughs> as as some of the, uh, the national predominant people that talk about the central states uh-huh. will point out quickly, uh, as one of the knocks on the Kansas City. Uh, but yeah, in the very end he had sold out the wrestling side, but people forget he was a promoter at heart. He promoted carnivals until uh, he you know basically his death and part of his carnival locations uh, Sonny Myers took over yeah and and, uh, and he also promoted things like anything that came through Joe, Saint Joe that needed that auditorium you had to pay your homage to Gus. So sure. whether it's the Globetrotters or Barnum Bailey or anything that came through, you to you had to clue him in. And that's one of the things about the central states that makes it kind of unique because Gus wasn't the only one. You had to deal with the Shriners in Springfield. You had to deal with a couple gentlemen if you got into Des Moines or got into Cedar Rapids, Omaha area. Mm-hmm. Uh, there was always homage to pay because you were using their venue. It wasn't uh, like some people say, oh, we'll, we'll just we go, we're in the hall. No, 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 no. There's a whole circuit of, of guys that had claims, and basically they wanted their share or a percentage of the data, or et cetera. So um, it's a, kind of a unique territory. I'm sure it, it exists in other places, but it was a, because the venues were so small, mm-hmm. it made a little bigger impact.
1: I definitely think you're right there. I think the, the and, reason and, yeah, why it was different probably from the bigger ones is because it was so it, it was so um, chopped up into small smaller venues, smaller territory, little fiefdoms within the territory. And, uh, you know, we'll talk about why we call this podcast the worst territory in the world. You hit on one of the points. But uh, Gus Karras, for anyone that didn't know uh, before now, he was a, a, prom- a longtime promoter. St. Joe was a, a town that we ran with a, a company we had called the NWS. And uh, it's always interesting when I did a documentary on um, the Central States wrestling. Gus Karras was long gone, but it was interesting. You know, Harley just spoke with such revere for him because, of course, he helped him live basically in the business yeah. for a long time. But uh, and we'll talk about that, Dan. But how did you? Uh, first of all, worst territory in the world. Called that because, like you said, a lot of people, Ric Flair and Cornetta, bring up specifically. They talk about well, Ric Flair really just just buries. Bob Geigel, how he wore uh, you know, shower shoes and, and looked like basically a, parf- a poor farmer guy uh, running a company. Uh, I could see, after meeting Bob for many years, I could see why him and Ric Flair would uh, clash big time uh, f- flamboyant versus more simple, normal guy. Uh, that's not going to really work out. But uh, did, did you ever think that? I mean, did you ever get that perception that Kansas City is looked at as this little podunk area, uh, especially by those guys for that reason?
2: You you would have to, for the guys that worked the territories, the Kirby's, the races, uh, you know, Rufus and all them, it was their type of people. But you get into the guys that were traveling around, um, the Funks didn't look down on it very well because it was a lot like the Texas territory. It's more of a blue collar type territory, and yes, you would you would get some vibe from some of those guys, especially like the flares, um, Cornette, I love him. He's a great guy, (laughs) but you would get some of that vibe because, you know, and I think it really puts it in perspective because when Harley and the guys took over Sam's part in St. Louis and we were, I don't know, in some place somewhere later years when, Bob brought up that they could run their whole territory for a month and sell out every venue in that whole territory for the month. Sam or the St. Louis Territory could put one show on in the Checker Dome or the Keel and have more people in the seats than a whole months worth of work. Sure. Just because of the size of the venues, I mean a sellout is thirty five hundred. A sellout with wrestling set up in the keel was thirty-five thousand. So I mean it was just it, it it was scale part of it. So yeah, you got a little bit of that, especially if you go like cauliflower alley and visit with some of the guys. Oh yeah. Um, yeah. That were active travelers at that time. Um,
1: I mean, I think a lot, Dan, I think a lot of people look at Kansas City as, uh, and it was interesting, I was listening to Cornett uh, last couple of weeks and he talked about Kansas City was looked at as, or was going to be a developmental territory for Crockett uh, when he was trying, you know, when he did buy it for a little while before it went back to Bob Geigle. Uh, and I can see that. I, Kansas City was looked at as a developmental territory for a lot of the young guys that had a lot of promise. They were here early, left uh, and and I could see that that would make sense. In fact, in some ways, I wish that would have happened because I think wrestling as a whole would have been better if you had stuff like that. But um, it, how did you get involved in in wrestling? I've, you know, when I met you, Dan, I um, you know you you were a guy that just offered your services for me when I was starting an independent promotion and really knew nothing about independent wrestling promoting at that point. I had gone from college to WWF, and then. You know, here I come back to Kansas City and start uh, wanting to still be involved in wrestling. And I start a, a promotion without really understanding anything about it. And you helped me so much during those formative years and throughout the entire time. But uh, I didn't, you know, I knew you had a connection with Harley. And I, and, and I knew you lived in mid-Missouri. But uh, when did you first start getting involved in the Central States area?
2: <laughs> okay, uh, we're going to have to go way back to my childhood. I first met Harley through my dad. Uh, For those folks, I was born and raised at Lake of the Ozarks. My dad was a boat guy. He worked on boats, managed marinas, etc. When Harley came out of the Minneapolis territory after the accident, after he'd been healed and he'd been paired with Larry the Axe and was ready to start his singles promotion, he came back to Kansas City, came back to Bob, and... One of the things he had picked up while he was in the Northern territory was the love for power boating. I mean, speed boating, power boating, unheard of in the Midwest at the time. I mean, in the Midwest, it was, you know, floating on the river, flat bottom boats, and maybe a ski boat, nothing with 500 horses behind it. So when Harley came back, he, him and my dad developed a friendship of, on my ninth birthday, uh, Harley gave my dad tickets to the show at the Armory in Sedalia, Missouri. Uh, one of the little, you know, venues that Bob and those guys ran. Sure. And uh, so we went up and I was a kid and my dad didn't want to take me, but I've him until we went. So we went up and after the show, Harley invited my dad and myself to go have dinner with the boys. And there was a little cafe behind the armory a couple blocks, that little white cafe that you walked in. Of course, all the blinds were closed. It was after hours. We went in to eat. And that's the first time I got kind of smartened up to the business because Harley and Bulldog Bob Brown had just went a time limit match and they're sitting in the same room <laughs> laughing and giggling. And the owner would let him bring some beer in and et cetera. And I'm like, now, wait a minute. These two guys are trying to kill. Oh, wait a minute. These two guys are trying to kill. So that was my first smart move. Um I kept my friendship with Harley because he maintained a boat at the lake throughout my teen years and into my college. Uh, I was in college and was working part-time and full-time, actually, at the end for a company that had several locations, one in Eldon, Missouri, and one in Ozark, Missouri. And I'd spend sometimes three or four days at each location. And in the early, well, mid-90s, you would know this gentleman, Mr. Marquez, was getting his feet wet. David Marquez, yes. Yep. With uh, World Legion Wrestling, uh, kind of a, and he had brought Harley and Gordon Soley, Carl Lauer, and uh, Bill Ash into his little group on the wrestling side. And we went to a show, and Harley recognized me. And then, like most any promotions, in 1996, they put me to work. <laughs> Basically, helping BJ, Harley's wife at the time, before she passed away, behind the merchandise table. And, and you worked your way up through that side of the business, just like you would do on ringside, if you were a performer. You know, you did the menial task did the first match, and you were tagged, well there was a lot of steps, you know, you worked with till they trusted you and then you went to selling tickets at the door or you went to being the music man. And then eventually I ended up as the ring announcer, uh, about 19, about 2000. I was the ring announcer. And once you get in the ring announcer position and you're at every show, um, basically the duties and the knowledge of the business continues to pour because, um, I worked primarily second and late shifts, so I would always go in early to Elden and sit in and visit with Harley, and he would go over how he wanted the cards done, et cetera. So that's how I learned the, what they call the front and the back side of the business. So that's how I got involved, and it just grew. And then uh, when you did your documentary and had interviewed, I think you interviewed Harley a couple different
1: times. I interviewed Harley. Well, the, the biggest interview I did with Harley was at a show you ran at the Harrisonville Community Center uh, over it's here right. in Cass County. And, uh, I had not talked to Harley before that moment. I had been to some WLW shows, but yeah, that was the first time I met him. And, you know, when I did that documentary, um, it was fun because, uh, you know, the reason why I wanted to do it so quickly, uh, and now looking back, I wish I would have had a little bit more, um, polish on my everything. But, uh, you know, at the time I was like, I need to interview these guys because they're all, um, you know, in, in wrestler years, when you hit 70, that's like 90 in other people's lives, you know? So I was like, I need to talk to these guys before they start passing away. And, you know, if you look at that documentary now, Dan, and it's, it's, uh, you know, 13, 14 years old, everyone's gone except, um, uh, Billy Howard is still alive. And, uh, you know, John Cohn was on there and so younger guys, but all from that, from the workers from that era, they're all gone. So that's, that's where I uh, first met Harley. Yeah. Yep.
2: And and I and I I second that because the first year they wanted me to go to Cauliflower Alley, I waved off of it for a couple years and then finally started going. Uh, and just that short time of who I had missed from the first offer to when I actually went was guys that had we had had in as special guest stars and et cetera, or like you said you hit that magic age of somewhere between 67 to 70 and those bumps start cashing in the paychecks. <laughs> I mean, that, it, it's, it's amazing. And uh, even some of the guys I met the first few years, I wish I'd taken the time as I got to in the last few years when I was involved, when I actually sit down and talk to Dr. Death for, you know, we'll actually pick him up at the airport and spend, two or three hours in the car just talking about stuff, not wrestling, but, you know, trucks and kids and, you know, your stuff that nobody talks about. It's it's really sad that we've lost that much history in the central states.
1: When I try to find people to interview just for, you know, just talk about some history of the central states, I mean, it is dwindling. I mean, you get to the point now where um, most of the people that are still around are from that final, like, five years of of Bob Geigel's sort of reign as a uh, as a promoter in Kansas City you know I was talking to someone the other day about this uh, you know most of the video that is still around for Central States Television is from about 85 to 90 and that's because that's when they stopped recording over the same you know 3 quarter inch tape and and bicycling bicycling it around the territory and they started keeping these so that's why on online if you go try to watch some full length episodes they're usually yeah 85 86 87 and uh, you know those are the—that's the era where some people are still around. You know, um, Rip Rogers. You know, they're still—they're still at Marty Janetti. There's guys that are still around. But from that early era, I mean, you know, when we talk to. Uh, Percival, a friend. You know the Black Angus era. We're talking about the huge era of Kansas City in the '70s, early '80s. Like they're all almost completely gone, and uh, now it's just really the one reason why I like doing this is because at least we can reminisce, and the people that are around some of these people can still talk about some of the memories of them because there's there's really nothing else about them.
2: Yeah, and and believe it or not, I actually met Murdy and Gertie. They were severely in their last years. Wow. But the legacy of those two twin ladies, I mean, you could write a book on that. Hmm. So I, I feel very fortunate that I met those folks. When I did, I kind of kicked myself because I didn't spend the time with them. I should have, you know, it's kind of like spending time with your grandpa. Sure. You know, you spend a lot of your early years, but the years you should be spending, you, you miss. Because uh, I would just love to hear the hatpin stories, the lawn, anything else. And, you know, personal friend, talk about the drives back from Des Moines to Kansas City with the headlights off and bumping cars and, you know, passing each other and hiding out and passing each other again. You know, it's it's road life that doesn't exist anymore that um, you wish you had taken the time to get the full stories. Yeah. For, of stories.
1: for those of you that don't know, Murdy and Gertie Height are a pair of old lady twins. Now, probably when they were quote unquote old lady twins, they were probably in their 50s. But uh, like, the, I don't know when you met them. They had to been in their 70s or 80s, I'm assuming at that yeah, point. Right, yeah. Um, yep. But they were known for that. This was an era in the Kansas City wrestling, which uh, every territory had it. But in Kansas City, they everyone had their own, like basically had the same seat every every week at Memorial Hall. And Murdy and Gertie were two older women that enjoyed going. And they, I remember talking to Harley about getting. You talk about the hat pin. He he told me one story about you know how he he almost look he he I think he enjoyed Murdy and Gertie Heights so much, even though they stuck him with a hat pin and probably made him bleed everywhere. Uh, he didn't. He sort of looked at it as more of a badge of honor than he was angry with them because he's like he was so mad but he said he'd turn around and see these like sweet little old lady faces he's like I can't what am I gonna do you know do something physical towards him no uh, but uh, they were always there and so and, and their driver I believe was was it Bob, Bill Johnson Bob Johnson I'm forgetting the name um, yeah
2: mr. Johnson is yeah what I've always heard him refer to
1: and Geigel told a great story to me about how he <laughs> He had Mr. Johnson's ashes. After he died, he left the ashes to... Bob Geigel, who was not any kind of blood relative, but he wanted Bob to take the ashes and spread them on the floor of Memorial Hall. And Bob said he put the box of ashes in his garage and it sat there for a long time. And then his wife or somebody was like, you need to get this Bob, you need to get Mr. Johnson out of here. And so Bob was like, well, I didn't really want to just, you know, put him over on the ground at Memorial Hall because he'll just get swept up. And, you know, it means nothing. So eventually he took the ashes and put them on the front lawn of Memorial Hall. And he's like, I know Mr. Johnson's happy with that. But uh, he was the driver of Murdy and Gertie Height. I mean, th- this is like the cast of characters of the actual just fans were uh, as, as interesting as some of the characters in the ring. Don't, do you remember that era?
2: Oh, yes. I mean, and people, are, I mean, they traveled. Harley would tell about seeing Murdy and Gertie on Thursday nights at Memorial Hall. And then if you were in Des Moines on Friday night, there they were again. Or if you were in Topeka on Saturday night, there they were again. I mean, Mister Johnson literally drove them all over the territory. There's very few shows that they missed. Um, and, but unfortunately, a lot of the, like you say, a lot of that old footage that you would see that same those same faces over and over is gone. And uh, I think I don't know if it was Bob or Harley or one of the guys during the one interview that they did at Cauliflower Holly talking about there were venues that you could walk into and you knew everybody in the first three rows. And if there were different faces, you were like, Hmm, what's going on here? What happened? Where are they? Are they sick? Did they pass away? Et cetera. Yeah. And then you would take the time to actually find out what happened to, you know, this person usually sat in row C seat 13, where are they? Oh, well, they were sick tonight. Oh, okay, we'll send them our best wishes. So that, that's part of the territory I think people don't realize uh, the, the thread that wrestling had. And it's probably a stronger thread probably in the Midwest than it would be in New York or Philadelphia or even Los Angeles because the crowds were so huge and there were so many people in and out.
1: Yeah, I, I would agree with that. I mean, you, you they, the crowds are smaller, so it's easier to get a little bit more intimate family. I mean, what you're describing, it reminds me of when you were helping with Metro Pro and NWL. I mean, when you do indies even in Kansas City now, you will still get like the first, you know, the people that buy the first, I don't know. 50 to a 75, 100 tickets are people that you know every show. I mean, you know, I bring up Debbie Schmidling and her brother. And like, I mean, it's the same people, like, and it, it sort of gives you that same vibe as what you're talking about back in the day. Um, obviously, different times, but still, still can get that sort of family atmosphere going on independence. But I did want to ask you, Dan, like about Harley, because I know you had such a, a more, uh, you know, close relationship to him than most people uh, around here. Um, what did he think about, uh, you know, he he traveled the world, obviously. He's, uh, you know, on many people's Mount Rushmore of a wrestlers all time, not only just the toughest, but like what he had to endure and everything throughout his career. What did he think about Kansas City in general? I obviously he came back to Kansas City and helped Bob whenever he could. uh you know he had bigger and better things to do, but he would still come back here. What did he think about Kansas City, the territory itself, and just this town?
2: Well, he loved, of course, being a northern Missouri quidman boy for those that don't know where Quidman is a town outside north of saint north east of Saint Joe and northwest of maryville. Uh, he was a Midwestern type guy that he loved Kansas city. Number one, because um, it was more of a blue collar type town. Um, He loved Bob Deigle. And of course he loved Gus. I mean, Gus, he would, you know, at the funeral, that's one of the few times I've ever seen the man cry. I mean, I've I've seen him cry on a couple occasions. um, But, he he really broke down. He had a pretty rough time at that at Gus's funeral. Of course, everyone knows the story that they were about ready to cut his leg off, and Gus came in and convinced Harley's parents, "Hey, let me take him to St. Joe, and then finally into Kansas City mm-hmm. to some you know orthopedic specialist, which was unheard of at that time, and see if we can't save save his leg." Which eventually they did. And um, but uh, he loved Kansas City. He he really loved that drive from Des Moines to Kansas city. I do not know why, but he, 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 he loved that drive and he loved to drive it. For those that have, have heard all the stories that Harley races, minimum speed on the road was 80. He loved about 110. It's true. Folks. I've been in the car with him hundreds of hours. And that's the way the man drove through these little twirly ass roads. And, 80 to 100, 80 to 100. The yeah. you went. Yeah. Whether you were pulling a ring on a ring trailer or not, that was hard. <laughs> um, but he, he, and part of it was he was familiar with it, and part of it he could, you know, tell you the history of the road, because you know when he first started, it was a little two lane windy thing that went through every little small town, and eventually 29 and 35 got built, and it turned into an interstate. Um, he also loved the Wichita uh, for some reason. He just felt comfortable. I don't know if it was the venue, uh, because in Wichita, from what I understand, it was kind of a little blend of talent. You get some guys out of the watch territory in Oklahoma. You might get some people out of Northern Texas. So there's always a blend of talent. Hardly like working new people a lot, um, uh, mainly because you like being in charge and being able to call everything. Um, uh, but but he loved the territory. Uh, when he, when I talked to him about ownership, he just smiled. I said, and he referred to me by my last name, Geyer. Geyer, it's always good when you make double money on any given night. I'm like, I mean, he says, well, I'm making my championship money in wrestling in Texas. The boys are making me my money with my share in Des Moines. And you're like, okay, that, that's, that makes sense. And that's how... I guess in those days you climb the ladders get into ownership. Um so he loved Kansas City, he he loved Japan of course. I, I I was lucky enough to go with him once to Japan. Uh and they treated I've never seen people step off of a sidewalk and bow to somebody. But they were doing that when Harley was walking down the street. That's cool. That that, that that's just unbelievable and uh one of the key, keys to Harley is he surrounded himself with great people. Uh, John Cohn, as you mentioned, he was on, on your documentary. Uh, he seemed to dra- attract good people, and he was also willing to teach them the business, and not, not just the fanfare and all that, but the actual backside. And then he also instilled into the, some of us that got really close and tight-knit in that group, always help the business. And that's one of the reasons that people go like, you drove up to to Chris's promotion like every six weeks. Yeah. It's the business. It's Kansas city wrestling. I like the style of wrestling you promoted and you produced. So why not? Oh yeah. Of course. uh, It led to some other opportunities that I still think were, were great exposures. I mean, NWL, the National Wrestling League, um, was even more complementary a to the history of wrestling because it you all did a lot of things like was done in the territory days, but yet with a modern you know algorithm and backside Facebook marketing, Twitter, actual production value, you know you. You just weren't walking out of a steel curtain like most indies. <laughs> you know, you, not everybody has that type of jumbotron and high-quality cameras that uh, the National Wrestling League did. So um, pretty interesting story of Central States wrestling in Kansas City.
1: Yeah, Dan, you, you've definitely, you're, you're always like such a great soldier with all that. You've always helped so much with all the independence and like out, so selfless of yourself to do that. Um, it was, it was nice that you finally, you know, got paid for the NWL, (laughs) but (laughs) (laughs) although you would, you would refuse pay from me, but I think you probably knew that, you know, running independent promotions is basically any money I made went straight back into it anyway. I wasn't, I wasn't paying for my children or anything. So, um, I think most people understand that, but, uh, so did you, before we go on to more modern stuff, I just wanted to get more thoughts on, did you meet, you, you met Bob Geigel. Uh, did Harley race, oh, yeah. uh, did Harley get along, was he, you know, as Pat, Harley, and Bob were the, the owners there for a while, was Harley, uh, did he understand the Ric Flair, you know, situation where, you know, Bob Geigle's uh, just a simple guy, did he take up for Bob, did he understand Flair's plight, like how did that all, how was that dichotomy, because sort of Harley's in the middle of all that
2: Harley was first of all. People really didn't ditch Bob when Harley was around. Now he would beat up on Pat, but they would never ditch Bob because huh. they knew Bob and Harley were pretty tight. And so that that was unique. You you could see, you know, when you go to some of these reunions, they would all be talking about yeah, Bob, you know, and his the sour seeds or flip flops, as we would call them. You know, in blue jeans and the and the flannel shirt, et cetera, et cetera, and then and but soon as Harley would walk in, all the ditching or the you know the, the rubbing or whatever you want to call, on Bob and his management style would stop. So there was a strong relationship there between the two, even when they went to uh, St. Louis together. <clears throat> so that was you know they would tell stories on one another. I, the the uh, brown paper bag story is one that, that still makes me laugh. Um, I guess we'll, we can talk about that for a second. Yeah. For those that don't know about the territory, when you're the national champ, not only is it your job to walk in as a national champ and leave as a national champ, you also carry messages from the home office to certain promoters are certain what we would call stopover territories. Uh, they weren't really part of the major players in the NWA but they were like there'd be a promotion like in northern Colorado so if you were trans transitioning from Kansas City to Portland it was a they, and he ran on an off night a Tuesday or Wednesday night or Thursday night. And you didn't need to be into Portland till Friday night. So you could stop and make a quick buck to help trans cost. But some of these places were known to, A, rough up some of the traveling guys, or B, short them on their pay. You know, promise them to pay them, you know, 30 bucks in the 50s was a lot of money, and then end up paying you five. Yeah. And then the minute you would kind of raise a little scuff about it, they would usually just shoot you on out the door. Well, this one instant, uh, Harley was the, one of the new chap, champions, brand-new national champion, and he was going out on the circuit for his first turn, maybe his second turn. And there was kind of an affiliate member that had basically the promoter had pulled one of the, pulled a gun on the former NWA national tag team champions and shorted them money. So they were going to send him a message via Harley. And they were scared that he would pull a gun at, on Harley, so they were in the conference room at at Mid America Sports, and they were explaining the situation to Harley. Hey, you know, deliver the message to stop roughing the boys up. If you're going to pay them, you pay them. Blah blah blah. And then they were like, "Now, Harley, he is he's pretty, you know, bad cat. Here, we we think you might need this." And they slid this brown paper bag across the table, and we'll switch to Bob. Bob. <laughs> So Harley opens it, and if you've ever seen that little grin Harley would get, there's a couple pictures of him, and there's some tape of it. He gets that little sheepish, boyish hood grin, looks in the bag, turns it over and dumps out. It's a small handgun. Harley <laughs> commences to reach around his back and lays that famous thirty eight down on the table says, I think we got that covered, boys. <laughs> <laughs> and Bob says, we quickly knew we had us a national champion.
1: <laughs> well, so. there, there, that brings that brings to mind two stories about Harley that I want to get your perspective on because I don't know if he talked to you about this specifically or what. But the first story is um, when he approached Hulk Hogan in Kansas City or he approached the show, a WWF show in Kansas City, and he got into a confrontation. I have heard so many uh, versions of this. Where you know he tried to start a fire. He pulled a gun. Like he went to Hogan. Hogan was cowering in the bathroom, and he, you know, he he, he was so scared of Harley. Uh, what, what what was his take on that?
2: Here is the most consistent version Harley's told of that. Yes, he they folks they ran against central states and WDF ran the same night in the same town. So Harley gets done. Harley goes over. He walks in the locker room because he can walk right by the security guards where they were at. But, you know, they they run that venue too. Everybody knew Harley. Hogan is sitting on a dressing bench. Harley rib-slaps him. Now, anybody that's been rib-slapped knows it stings. Mm-hmm. He basically, it's... And then when Hogan turned around and was, you know, going to posture up and draw, you know, punch, whoever it was, they realized it was Harley. And Hogan made some comment, I've heard Harley say it a couple different ways, but it was like, Oh shit, Harley, well if I thought you would be in here, you'd have that big gun waving. And Harley did show him because it's a fact Harley went basically nowhere in that time and era without a gun. Harley did pull back his little windbreaker and he had the thirty eight. He never pulled it, but he did show him so, "No, I don't need a big gun. Not dealing with you idiots, and then that was that's the story Harley would tell, and I've never heard anybody refute it. Of course, it's been elaborated on, and you know you got Hogan's four or five different versions of it. And like you said, it's it's been on. But there was a small confrontation, and I asked him one time, "Did you really try to burn the ring down?" He said, "Why would I burn the venue down? I was going to run it in two weeks." (laughs) Makes sense. (laughs) Makes sense. But there was a rib slap apparently, and a little bantering, and of course everybody knows later Harley did eventually go work for Vince and the fellows. But uh, that's that's on the one story. Okay, well that so that's what he's told me on several occasions from going down the road at 100 miles an hour at midnight to setting it uh, having barbecue with Britt Hart on the back deck of his lake house. So that's that's a pretty consistent story on Hardy's
1: view well that makes sense so, and I mean I think Hogan has sort of tarnished his credibility on some of his other stories he's told about Andre and and, and the like so uh, he, he tends to embellish a lot which is fine Like it's sort of more fun sometimes to hear these stories when they've been embellished so much It's becomes legendary um, it, it reminds me of when we had Haku in for NWL and, and I got to drive with him in Barbarian from Kansas City to Wichita which was one of the greatest drives ever And uh, they they he told me I asked him about every story, you know, biting the guy's nose off, you know, all this stuff. And it was very fun to hear it from Haku's mouth. But that's why I never really got to talk to Harley about some of these stories. The other story was in his uh, Harley's uh, autobiography, which um, I know. It's funny, the history of Harley's autobiography is an interesting story in itself because it had so many, it was tied to several people. I think Matt Murphy at one point was going to write it. I think there was somebody, there was a couple other people, uh, Jason, um, Jason King. Was another guy who was going to write it, and you know, of course, Harley has so many legendary stories, and he's known as one of the toughest guys ever, and all this stuff in wrestling. For to pick someone to write that book would have been difficult, uh, but he he eventually put it out, and one of the stories in there that he wrote about was the other one I was going to ask you about, which was when he, uh, Vincent, and him, and I guess their wives went out to dinner and vince wanted to you know basically wanted him to jump at that time which he did eventually but he did not do it this time he did not want to and they went to the bathroom and like vince tried to double leg him and like harley basically you know turned it around on him and made vince uh, you know not look good um did he did he ever tell you that story
2: i i've heard he i've heard some versions of that the the dinner um There is is no doubt it occurred whether Harley had his wife with him or it was a one-on-one. It was before Starcade. It was, hey, come to work for me. Bring the belt. I'm going to ruin Starcade. And Harley did excuse himself from the table to go to the restroom because he said, the money that we were talking would square up all the money we had lost fighting with him all, uh, you know, because there for a while, you know, Vince and those guys were, they weren't afraid to come in and run head to head on the same night against you in the same town. Sure. And sometimes people would accuse him of doing it on purpose, but I mean, you know, whether it was the way the booking worked out or whatever, but that was Vince And Harley, Vince did come into the restroom while Harley was at the sink. And, said, well, Harley, what do you think, what do you think, what do you think, you You know, as as the typical Vince, and Harley basically said, um, there's one guy that I've got to answer to, blah, 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 and he made the, you know, the the varying statement that I'm looking at that guy right now, and Vince thought it was him, or actually it was Harley looking in the mirror, saying, you know, this is a guy i got to live with. And whether Vince made the lunge for him or... Vince, something happened where Harley basically does what Harley does, grabbed him and spun him around and made him look like a fool. But whether it it was a leg sweep, whether it was, you know, maybe that that gets a little varying. And I've never, you know, that part of the story is where I believe some embellishment does occur. Now, whether... You know he he front face locked him or he spun him around and dropped him or just sidestepped him or whatever I don't know but I'm I, the, the story is really consistent about the offer about the restroom thing happening and whether the the leg sweep or the leg drop or whatever was was attempted that gets a little fuzzy so you know I think that's Harley's listened to that story a couple times and just grinned through it uh, it was, a. I think, as you know, his autobiography was written by a ghostwriter that finally, like you said, collected stories from several sources and tried to put them in a flow. And uh, I don't think Harley denied that version, but I don't think Harley's ever told it in that detail that that version that made his book. Let's put it that way.
1: Well, I mean, knowing Vince, after, you know, I worked with Vince when Vince was in his early to mid fifties. Um, so you're talking at that point, Vince was in a, he was probably in his early forties or late thirties when yep. this was possibly going on. So, uh, yeah, it would have, I, I mean, I can totally see it, um, happening no matter which way it happened. Like, you know, no matter which way version of that story you hear, it's very logical, whichever way at the end of the day, Harley basically had Vince in a, Compromising position that um, you know Vince wasn't going to get out of unless Harley wanted him to. So, um, right. but those are that those are the kind of stories you get around Harley, and I was uh, that's one reason why he's such a legend because he he's yeah. he was put in some really interesting and very uh, historical situations. So, um, well,
2: yeah. So, and, <laughs> and whether again, I've heard Harley confirm it was a front face lock. I've heard that he basically side him and pushed him to the floor and then put him in a small package. I've heard, you know, that no, it was basically I did the old hand squeeze and made him piss his pants or, what you know, whatever version you want to go with. Uh, but, but the altercation did occur after Harley said no, from what I understand. Well, so I guess it was-
1: Let's move on Not- to Harley let's move on to Harley going into the independent wrestling game you mentioned David Marquez and world Legion wrestling at the time it eventually morphs into world league wrestling and Harley ran that until he basically you know he was involved with that you know until the very end it had a couple different homes or maybe three several several different homes yep. um and uh so what what was that like what was what was harley's take on uh, you know I've talked to you about this just in in regards to the Metro Pro wrestling when I was running and WLw was running as well. but what was Harley's uh thought on getting involved in that and what did he really think about being a independent wrestling promoter?
2: Well, uh, the evolution of w l w or world league wrestling was basically he saw it as uh, only way to make the money that he basically had to clean the mess up from Legion. Uh, as you know, you, uh, Mr. Marquez was great with television and had World Legion on um, a satellite feed, et cetera, et cetera. But as yeah. you know, there are several ways to get there, <clears throat> some of it involving money. <laughs> so uh, when that all went down, Harley was, I think at the time, just going to uh, run it to get his money back. But then it turned into, um, hey, it got. It, it was great for him to get involved with the young guys. Uh, for some reason, even when he, his last run with WWF or WWE, whatever you want to call it now, he was a magnet to the young guys. The young guys respected him, and I don't know. Part of it is he still was in that ribbing, fun, look, you know, lucky go lucky type guy. Um, so he thought it was an opportunity to teach people, uh, teach them the way he was taught, where you walk out in the high school gymnasium with no fanfare or anything, uh, maybe a little background music, and it's your job between you step through the door till you get to the ring to establish whether you're a basic face or a basic heel, and then it's your job to tell the story inside the ropes. Um uh, so, I mean, and then he loved it because of the fans on top of that. And then you add in that you actually there were people call Harley and say Harley, you know, I'm going to be Chicago on this date. Are you running the show? I'd love to come see you. And a lot of the folks just took trans. They didn't or or merch money. Sure. They didn't take their parents' fees. They just and because they knew Harley would be a host when they got there. I mean, I you know, he was always a great big barbecuer. He'd always take you out, and you never had to buy anything when you were a guest of Harley's. Uh, so, And he also was basically outlet for guys that were, you know, that big talent swell when WCW got bought out by WWF. A lot of those guys weren't working but yet they had just been on television so there was a need for adrenaline to flow and we were running how a typical WLW show two thousand two through two thousand six, you know, we rode the cycle like everybody. It was three to three to a thousand people, three hundred to a thousand people. Sure. And they were close, so you were still getting some of that feel and flair for some of those guys. So and then At the end of the day, Harley was a wrestler. That's what he knew. I mean, from age about 14 or actually 15 to he died, he was in the wrestling business. The wrestling was the answer to Harley. To get feel better, we go wrestle. To make a little money, we go wrestle. To go out and socialize, we go wrestle. So that was a lot. Harley was a wrestler. And to that is one of the reasons he probably made a fantastic NWA champion that didn't mind traveling 296 nights a year and then showing back up in Kansas City and wrestling for Bob on some of the nights he was booked not to be doing anything sure he ended
1: up having one of the best you know he he was known at a time where there wasn't a lot of good wrestling schools i mean the Harley Race Wrestling Academy when he was in his prime and still was able to get into the ring and do some i mean that was he was one of the best. I mean, everyone would send yeah. people to him. You know, talking to Dr. Tom Pritchard about it, he he obviously he's gone there before I know, and he obviously has a ton of respect for Harley, and Harley just carried that a lot. So you guys, and when you when Harley had his company, you had a ton of big names come in, whether it was you know Roddy Piper or you know like Meng and Haku or Haku and Barbarian rather. Uh, there was you, know, you, you had the gamut of all the big stars, and it was because of all the respect they had for Harley. Um, yeah.
2: And and he worked into part of his business model because a star was worth fifty to sixty tickets. Sure, you know, and because everybody has has a fan, so and it, and it was great actually meet those guys one on one because you got to meet them personally. I mean, uh, spending three and a half hours with a car ride with Roddy Roddy Piper is an experience <laughs> everyone should have. <laughs> And then, to see him blow up at the venue wanting to talk to you when nobody else is another experience because he was he was not happy once he got to the venue. so um, it was it was i mean, so and harley was Harley had the connections. He still had the connection. he was respected by everybody. And for those years of two thousand four, five, and six, and his wrestling camps, It was one of the only places that you got somebody from WWE because they respected him, somebody from Japan, pro wrestling, Noah, typically, that you actually could try to land a job with. Sure. In that little five days in Eldon. I mean, it set a lot of guys' careers, you know, the basics, because you got a taste of it without going knowing what's going on. So it, it was an experience that uh, uh for for that short time frame and then Harry would say uh, hey he'd check out if he got a call from a promoter saying hey you got a couple guys Harry was not afraid to send a couple guys to to Dallas or to Denver or whatever. Sure. And he wasn't afraid sometimes to send somebody like me along to make sure they got paid. <laughs>
1: because that's necessary usually. So yes. Yeah. Uh so fast fast forward through that. Uh I start Metro Pro in two thousand nine, ten. Uh you come in and help me a lot. You do you run the door for me, and then you uh you're involved in that and I could just tell that you were just very happy to be involved in Kansas City wrestling. You would always say that. And then that sort of spun into, you know, in two thousand sixteen I get a call from this guy named Major Bazden, who wants to start NWL in Kansas City, and I know a lot of, you know, it's been gone like five years now, so it's so weird that it's been that long, but it has been that long, and uh, it's, you know that was a i saw you write about it on facebook the other day how um you will reminisce about it the nwl days and i appreciate that because it, they, it is such a special thing for the people that got to be involved in it um for the most part i think some people didn't like it uh i don't really know why but they did not enjoy it but for the most part that was uh, an experience that i will never have uh ever again and i knew at the time it was like that and uh, for you that weren't around or don't know what NWL was it was a promotion that was based out of Kansas City made by a guy named Major and was the owner and he was a successful technology guy and uh, basically wanted to um, have sort of rivalry, he, his plan Dan I think you knew this was Uh, He wanted to start in Kansas City because he's from here and have a natural rival town with St. Louis and sort of have sort of a circuit between those two. And eventually he wanted to spin it out into different areas in the in the United States. He had sort of done some research on how to uh, put some towns together that would be natural rivals and sort of sort of put this model in different areas after starting in Kansas City and St. Louis and For many, many reasons that um, we could talk about forever. And we're going to talk about this on this podcast a lot uh, going down the road about NWL. But um, I know that you found that to be a very unique uh, experience. Uh, You reminded me of Major earlier when you said Harley drove 100, 110. I'll never forget being in a truck with Major. And we were going to one of our first promotional gigs over in uh, Pontoon Beach, Illinois. And he was driving through this town, which was like a one-horse town with maybe a flashing yellow light. And he was over there driving this, you know, he's got his, like, uh, pumped-up, like, red pickup truck that's on lifts and all this. And uh, he's got his vape pen in his mouth. And I, we're flying through this town. And I look down, and it says, like, 108, 108 107, 108. And I take a picture of the speedometer, and I send it to my wife. And I'm like, I, I hope I live, you know. Um, but uh, but he was a he was a character and that whole that whole scenario of N W L, although there were some flaws that obviously and the the end of it did not really happen because of the wrestling, it happened because of Major's personal situation. But uh, that's that experience was very fun.
2: Yes, it was, and, 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 and really for me, Indy was either like you had a sketch schedule for Metro, about every six weeks we were going to be a turn. Sure, and we'd announce the date. Everybody would either buy their tickets or get the reservations right then. With NWL, it opened up, and then the other way to promote indie wrestling is you go plaster the town with posters and hope it works. Buy some television. I mean, buy some maybe radio or maybe a newspaper ad. Spend your two or three hundred dollars and and hope that you're going to get 100 to 200 people in the house. But majors, you know, the whole backside that a lot of people didn't realize was going on, you know, the innovation of Fight Club, the innovation of the presentation with the Jumbotron, and the talent that was attracted that was being paid a full-time salary with benefits, including insurance, unheard of, even at the professional level, I mean, people don't realize if you're Randy Orton and you have insurances because you're paying for it out of your own pocket with an insurance broker. I mean, people, you know, people forget all this stuff. Sure. And then just to sit in the office and look at the, you know, the Facebook marketing things that he would that Major was coming up with. And although I wasn't in the office every day, like a lot of the full time staff, I would get glimpses of that. And say, this is just amazing how we're target marketing and we're we're doing all this stuff. And it, it was it was a true for a business geek like me it was it was and a wrestling geek. It was the ultimate blending of the two, um, you know. And it also for those that people who, are, well you know you've got millions of dollars. Well, people don't realize that millions of dollars isn't. Setting in cash piled up on your kitchen room table, it's invested. It's supposedly creating income of its own that you can use, and it, so it also opened that side. and It's an experience I that I still say, thank you for bringing me along. That was supposed to be a one or two day consultant job that ended up the life run of the company, and yeah. and and major taking the time to you know when he would stop by or one of the guys that was in the office to explain exactly what's going on and and then to see some of the talent that came through there that came with reputations of being A, but left with skill sets and reputations being B. And we're not I won't get into names, but you know, I was aware of some of the reputations of some of the wrestlers that came into the door and then looked at the finished product after they'd been with us in Kansas city, whether Kansas city did it, the promotion did it or the family like atmosphere that occurred, did it, you know, it, it was a great time for wrestling. And then it also brought wrestling from the 100 to 200 people. And, you know, we were, you know, there's a couple of shows we broke a thousand with. So, it, w- it was a great experience. Well, Everyone should experience
1: it. You broke a thousand after, you know, and you're running it every other week you know I mean yeah there was some there was a lot of the just the the fascination around the entire way that it was built up I mean just the fact that we had a high-rise office in Kansas City downtown then you know a few miles north we had a full-fledged gym slash training facility like I'm you know a small mini micro version of the performance center uh, where people were like, like you said, we had, I forget at the end, eight to ten full-time wrestlers with the salary, and they could either opt to take some of that money and, you know, um shelter you know their their rent you know whatever or they could uh take it all in salary and get their own place whatever but uh you could basically work on promos work on your wrestling work out there you know that was what the idea was for all of that and uh we had a full staff inside doing social media doing we had a i mean when we first started uh the early years which is what we're going to cover on this podcast here soon is uh you know it was just interesting we had a daily boardroom meeting And, and, you know, this was even some, I had worked for corporations. I'd worked for WWF. We, I'd never had a meeting like this before. Uh, and every morning, uh, major and everyone in the office would have to sit around and explain what they, what they did, uh, the last day since we saw you last. And, uh, it it was an interesting thing because, you know, usually don't have daily accountability like that, but it was, it was cool. And, um. You know, it was treated like a full fledged corporation. Uh, you know, there was some there were some decisions that were, uh, you know, could have gone either way. That some did, some didn't. Um, you know, but uh, at the end of the day, and I know that you've seen a lot of people talk about the N W L, and you know, a lot of people that either didn't know what they're talking about or were negative about the situation because they weren't pushed to the moon, even though they didn't deserve to be they will say stuff that they will say negative stuff about this and major and all this and i I think as time has gone on i think they've all been proven pretty wrong um you know there were some like i said there were some financial decisions that could have gone the other way you know major was wanting to bring wrestling into urban areas too you know he didn't want to keep it on the outskirts of the the suburbs he wanted to go downtown kansas city downtown st louis make it more of a city thing more than a suburb thing and, you know, going into that, I was skeptical, but, you know, Major had a lot of, he, he did, he was a king of research and he was very smart, uh, major, and I got to work for Major Baysden and Vince McMahon, and they were both uh, very similar in many ways. Um, but, uh, Major's one of these guys that will always end up on his feet. He'll always end up running some multi-million dollar company cause he's just a go-getter hustler. And that's just what he is. Um. You know, he's never going to be he's never going to be working in a cubicle. It's just not in his DNA. Uh and this nope. guy was dynamic as hell and it was uh what a what an incredible like situation to look at. I mean, if you go back to early days, Dan, you had we had these meetings where uh you know we're we as you know we what we tried to do is have all the wrestlers have their own gimmick within our company, so if they were still working at ten other indies in the tri state area, they would have a little bit more of a, a diversification with our company than being the same person everywhere and for some reason, a lot of you know independent wrestlers had a problem with that um it, you know just because they believe their value as their name that they were running the other indies was more valuable than what they could be with nwl and look you could debate that sort of but i don't i I never truly understood their out their problem with that considering that we're only you can still most of them could still work other indies they just had to use this character here which is i don't know I, i didn't think that was that difficult but a lot that was sort of a sticking point with some people but, uh, I mean, they were, we were mapping out these names. We had a conference call with every single wrestler talking about their new name, their new gimmick, sort of allowing them to pitch ideas, giving some ideas we might have for them name-wise, all this stuff, which was, you know, in a microcosm what they used to do at WWE in the 80s and 90s with their creative services and people making this stuff up for them, characters, whatever. And uh, then at the end of the day... Let's say, for example, I remember Jack Foster, who was Jake Durden, and uh, he went by Jack Foster. He was sort of like um, a hermit guy that, not, not the Unabomber, but and, and as far as a, he's not a killer like that, but he would be sort of a Unabomber type guy, a survivalist, I would call him, I guess. And he would go out, and and I remember Marcy uh, was tasked with like getting some gear for him. And one thing that we needed to get was Major wanted him to have a typewriter like an old school typewriter because that would fit the gimmick and all this stuff. And I mean, we were dealing with like theatrical prop companies. And I'm, I mean, the the money being talked with some of these things was outrageous. And, uh, you know, like I said, there was some excess. There was very, there was a lot of excess. But it was, if you were on the side of us where we were like being able to, in, in, engulf ourselves in the excess it was very cool (laughs) but but uh you know that that was definitely you know coming out of the company slash majors pockets so um he was all in man i I, he he tried to make that work so hard and really at the end it was working um we had sort of changed the business model and we were in the black as far as the wrestling company but some of the other, like you said, the liquid assets weren't there at the very end, and um, that was, you know, there's just a lot of payroll involved in that company. There was, oh, um, as yeah. you know. <laughs>
2: oh, well, as you mentioned earlier, it was uh, to date my <laughs> out of the thirty some odd years I've been involved in wrestling, my biggest paydays. So, and you look back, and by today's standards they were in the real world, not bad paydays, but in the wrestling world, they were good paydays. So, you know, you've got to sure. deal with that all, all that too. So, and, and I can, and I'll stick up for major. He shook my hand. He did everything he told me he was going to do. He allowed me to do. And he said, you know, he'd say, it's yours. This is the data I would need. You got it, brother. Thank you. And you guys basically did the same way. I mean, uh, again, it's an experience that, uh, everyone should experience that has the opportunity. <laughs> and again, I saw some growth out of some folks that, and skills developed that it wouldn't happen anyplace place else.
1: Sure. That was uh if, if, if much like anything in life, if you have a positive outlook and you just try to make the best of what you've been given, which in that situation you were given a lot and you took advantage of it as much as you could, you could have grown leaves and bounds there. And some did, some did, some didn't. Oh yeah. But, You know that's that's sort of how life is uh but it was awesome i was glad you were part of that because you're a trustworthy guy and uh you know reliability and trust are two of the biggest things you can have in in wrestling in life but really in wrestling more so so um (laughs) but i appreciate you uh helping me throughout the years dan and i you've obviously engulfed yourself in central states wrestling history as being a guy that has been around it for many decades and uh, I thank you for all your help, and uh, thanks for being on today.
2: Well, thank you for having me, and uh, I look forward to bumping into you and maybe stopping into your business the next time over on that side of the state. Or, of course. Uh, I've uh, bumped into a few of our old friends that are now actively promoting. So uh, Sure. Um, you never know, I might bump into you at one of those shows.
1: Of course. Of course. I hope to see you all soon, right. Dan. Thank you very much.
2: All right. Thanks, guys. Appreciate it. It's
0: the worst territory All right welcome back to the worst territory in the world Chris my gosh what a great interview with Dan Geyer this week.
1: Yeah, you know, Dan is uh, I could get on the phone with Dan and talk for hours. He stops by the winery and uh will, we, we'll, you know, when he's on this side of the state and like I just love talking wrestling with Dan. He's a guy that really uh loves wrestling as you heard him say. He enjoys coming to Kansas City uh just to just to help Kansas City wrestling continue and uh he's such a good dude. So glad he's still around and glad I get to talk to him.
0: Yeah, every time I see him at, you know, CSW show or any kind of local show, I just I sit next to him the entire time and we just BS about the wrestling business. And we talking you know, about, you know, the current the current stuff going on here in Kansas City. And and the one thing's for sure is no matter bad in the middle, great, and different. Dan is always there at the shows because he loves and he wants to see the business succeed, especially here in the worst territory in the world. So he
1: does. And he, and he loves the worst territory in the world. And he as really you, does. As you heard. So, um, so Dan Guy a lot of guys like that, that we want to interview that are sort of behind the scenes that you wouldn't know, but have so many good stories and have been around it for years. So we'll have more of those
0: yeah absolutely and before we get to the final segment chris which you know is my favorite part of the show um you guys did speak of and we have spoken of obviously in in some sort of detail of the the vaunted nwl and i just want to encourage everybody that guess what we are going to do our first installment talking about the nwl right here on the worst territory in the world and chris I am so excited to to break in to uh the NWL because uh, well I broke into the business through the NWL so um what can what can what can we expect with that first episode
1: I think the first episode we're basically going to just start talking about the creation of it how I got involved um you know just the first steps the building blocks of of that company again for all of you that don't know the NWL Began roughly in 2016 and lasted only until 2018, but those couple of years were a uh, very fun and interesting ride, and uh, it was a situation that I've never seen in America before, and I doubt we'll see it again and uh, it all was funded by a man named Major Bazin, who was a great boss and uh, a and very cool guy to be around, uh, business wise. And uh, so I think there's so many parts and facets of the N.W.L. that are fascinating to to sort of geeky business related wrestling fans. That I think you really have to cut this up into a lot of situ- a lot of segments. Uh, we have a lot of people that we can bring on the next few shows about this. You know whether it's uh, you know the Matt Jackson of the world who helped me on create. Of uh you know uh, other people who worked in the office uh some of the wrestlers that had full-time jobs um you know some of those guys i think would be interesting uh people to to get their perspective on what they learned during those years but uh the next show that we have here will be sort of about the creation
0: of the nwl yeah i can't wait to dive into it and i think what this is going to do too chris is this gonna this is going to give people an opportunity because even in my small interactions with a recent uh, facebook post about the nwl there is so many misconceptions still about sure. what happened and, and every, it's just it, it it's crazy i mean and arlen Pavlenko, he is going to <laughs> just learn so much about the uh, uh the uh rise and fall of the nwl I'm so, not sure
1: if he has the capacity to learn but no they <laughs> there there are a lot of people that will and i don't think a lot of people really talked about it they really understood it um of course some of the like, people that
0: worked in the company still don't understand it goff no
1: no i look there's a lot to understand you know there was a lot to it and there was a I'm it was a
0: wrestlers
1: There was, there was a lot of people involved um, and a lot, most people that I talked to, even those that were soured by the end of it, they still enjoy the NWL now years later, but, uh, but yes, we, we will, uh, we will talk about it.
0: We'll, We'll get into all that stuff. All right, Chris, here we go. We are at my favorite part of the show, the final show where Chris Goff gets to choose his own adventure and answer some long, deep desire, burning questions that I may have for him. So Chris, your menu this week, of course, is uh Hogan's history Yeah, I mean we can we can we can go into Santa's sack I mean we're we're still on the tail end of the season if you want um we can do Mount Rushmore or we can do the hot you love the hot seat we can we can do the hot seat
1: uh I want to do Mount Rushmore this week Gabe
0: okay all right so the Mount Rushmore this week obviously every week if he chooses Mount Rushmore it's, you know, that's one of the favorite conversations of any wrestling fan is who is on your Mount Rushmore. And then you choose, you know, your Mount Rushmore of wrestlers. Well, this week, I've got a really good one for you. Who is your Mount Rushmore of female wrestlers?
1: Hmm. Female in-ring wrestlers. Yes. Because I can give you a Mount Rushmore of females in wrestling. Uh, but um, let's go with let's go with workers. Okay. Oh, man. Yeah, I know. Well, of the people <laughs> that I got to work with, um, man, I mean, you know, in the, era, in the era I was there, I got to work with people like Trish Stratus, Lita, Victoria, Ivory, Jacqueline.
0: Um, I mean, yeah. right there. I mean, you. Some people would. Put you could name those,
1: four of those, and yeah. you could yeah. put four there. I mean, obviously, you have the the ones that came before. Like Mula is such a huge, huge person in professional wrestling history. May Young, of course, made her name for many many decades. Um, and then you know today, China was such a force. Then you go on to. To, uh, to Charlotte, and uh, you know, there, there's some big names now that could be placed on there. But if you're, I, I'm gonna sort of excuse the current group that are still yes, professionally I wrestling. I would agree. Um, I don't know, man. I, if you really want workers in the ring, um, Man. I you have to put Moolah on there. Just she was such a force. Like I don't care what anybody we everyone got to see her in the attitude era when it was blown up when she was, you know, 80 years old, but uh and then she got knocked for being uh yeah. I, I still could argue some of the Moolah stuff that she took all that negative flack when they named the tournament after her. I thought there was some stuff that was like you know, some of the business practices she did was just common for the era. It it doesn't, I don't know. Like in today's terms, it looks horrible, but all these people still paid like money. You know, they they had a booking fee, and it happened with the midget wrestlers as well. It's just I they, they haven't been under yeah. attack like Mula has. Uh, fabulous Mula is up there. I am a huge fan of Sherry Martell. Oh, dude, Amen, Amen. Um, she is a obviously most people. Uh, our age got to see her more as a manager and she was fantastic as at that as well, but she was a great, I, like, she was just great all around as a character. Um, and then I, I thought Jacqueline was a great wrestler. Like I thought I she was really good. Um, she, she, you know, she fought the odds. Like there weren't a ton of black female wrestlers in her era when she was coming up and she is a, like in the a, South. She was a fireball, man. She's about five foot nothing. She's like five, five, one. She is like a small thing, but she was jacked and, uh, in multiple ways. And, uh, she was very, um, she, she was, she was great. She was great to work with too, because she was, uh, she was a person, like, when I was there, like, near the end, she wanted to become a referee. She wanted she wanted to be just uh and she was sort of like – I think she saw the writing on the wall as far as, like, some of the other girls that were going to get more play time as far as pushes in the female division. So she wanted to get pushed as the first female referee uh, of any consistency in that era. And um, she was always open to new ideas. So I like her. And then I would go with um... – oh, man. I guess I'd go with uh... – I guess I go with Trish. Yeah. Um, You know, Trish. Trish is, uh, she's part, you know, Victoria, Trish, they were both fitness models that came into the business. Lita obviously came up through Mexico, went through ECW. Uh, they all worked their way up through there. Uh, you know, another one I didn't mention was uh, jazz. She was great. Uh, Fantastic. She's a great wrestler. Um, you know, I, I don't, you know, she was definitely someone that, uh, was really good in the ring when she was in WWF
0: E. Uh, but I don't know. I'd go with those four. What would you say? I'm definitely going, first and foremost, Trish Stratus, because Trish, for as good looking as she was slash is, had no right being that good. Had no right being that good. Like, I, I, just gorgeous to look at and just a phenom, and truly a good worker. I mean sure. – I just and and that's why I rank her so high is because you usually, you know, the fitness models were always kind of clunky and, yeah you know, it was, you know, they would do stuff. And I mean, Victoria obviously was another cut that was like, oh, man, this this person's really good. Um, I think Lita is a, is kind of a shoe in, but I kind of want to go outside the box a little bit. Um, definitely a Blaze slash Medusa Michelle. Definitely Medusa. Yeah, I didn't mention her. She's uh- great phenomenal i think she was groundbreaking as a manager um in the dangerous alliance as mm-hmm. as rude second um her stuff with paul lee when he oh well, god he was cut some vicious promos on her um <laughs> there was just there was a lot uh a lot going on there so i would say her i would say sherry martell and then the last one and the only reason why i'm not going to put mula on there. Is because I've never actually seen outside of one Moolah match. So these are all women who I've actually seen their body of work. Sure. Um I, I would say the last one would probably be Jacqueline because I found out about her watching USWA and Miss in, when she was Miss Texas. Um, and she was just tough as nails, man. And I gotta respect somebody that a, again, a black performer, tough as nails, who like apparently from all accounts is as sweet as sweet can be. Um, behind the scenes. And, um, I was about to make a really bad inside joke reference, but I'm not going to do that. Um, but yeah, she definitely. I I think uh, those those would be my my ladies on Mount Rushmore, and especially Alundra and uh, and Trish. They're just. I
1: thought you'd go with Mildred Burke, but uh, you know, I guess you don't care about the oldies. Um, what about like China, dude? China was like the Bo Jackson of wrestling. Whoa. She came in with such a huge force, and then she uh, she left with such a quickly as well. She's a meteor in wrestling. She is like. Uh, you know Nicole Bass is up there. I'm just kidding, not. No. But China was like a huge star, huge star, huge very star, short, sh- very short-lived. But uh, huge, huge star.
0: I just never, you know, man. I can't tell you a good China match off the top of my head. No,
1: it, it wasn't. It wasn't as her matches as much as it was just her aura and the way she was pushed with right. DX and just uh, it was just she was just a huge phenomenon in in wrestling. You know, you're not going to tell me like a lot of great Andre the Giant matches that you've seen either. But I mean, he's <laughs> that's just a, a huge good point. Star. That's a really I mean, good point. I mean, that's it, a really you know, like, I mean, I gotta give credit. Like, I told you, Ivory was around for years going with Glow, and then you have, uh, you know, Natalia Neithardt has been in WWF forever, so you know, what I mean, and Wendy Richter, she was a big one oh, early on, good one, uh, back in the uh, rocking, rocking wrestling days. So, you well, know, there's so many
0: people to choose from. I gotta tell you, man, I'm shocked you didn't do Molly Holly on one of those.
1: <laughs> well, Molly Holly is a great wrestler, she he is. is. Like, uh, she's, she's underrated if anything. And, you um, no, I, Molly Holly is a good friend of mine and I, and she, she's definitely in the conversation.
0: She is. And that I was, I was like, okay, I know at least one of Goff's is going to be Molly Holly, <laughs> Holly for sure, because I know I'm you're trying guys, not to be biased here. Oh, okay. okay. All right. Cause I knew, okay. you know, you guys had a, a friendship and everything going back to WWE. So, um, anyways. All right. Well, that is our Mount Rushmore for this week. Uh, Chris thank you so much I'm um, glad we got to reconnect after the holiday season yeah man Um, and next week guys do not miss it we are going to take our first of many dives into the national wrestling league that feels weird to say right re- the I just referred to as NWL for years so saying the wrestling part is just always stuck in my craw. It is weird. Yeah. But we'll get into that actually next week about the naming and, uh, some of the, and just the, the foundations of what's to come in the NWL. So Chris, thank you so much. Um, we will talk again next week, right here on the worst territory in the world.
2: It's the worst territory in the world.